Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, Kate Fulton and me, Clive Rosley. Coming up on this episode, we will be meeting the newly knighted Sir Ben Helfgott, who, of course, is the Holocaust survivor amongst many, many other achievements in his life. We will speak to him a little later on to find out how he felt about being honoured in the birthday honours. We're also going to be speaking to Paul Charney, the chairman of the Zionist Federation. This is following the annual Al-Quds Day march, which took place this weekend, just gone. And our very own Kate Fulton is going to be telling us about how she has been doing her part for National Volunteer Week. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the annual Al Kuls Day March, which a leading lawyer who suffers from multiple sclerosis managed at one point to block single-handedly. Mark Lewis, who's in a wheelchair, delayed the rally as supporters of Israel and followers of the Iran-backed Hezbollah terror organisation attempted a face-off. A group organised by the Zionist Federation was kept away from the Al Quds supporters, who rallied under the gun-emblazoned flag of Hezbollah, despite calls by the London mayor for it to be banned. The Holocaust survivor Gina Turgel has passed away at the age of 95. She was born in Krakow, Poland and survived Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, where she met her husband, who was helping to liberate the camp. She dedicated her life to educating people about the Holocaust and telling her story about escaping the gas chambers before restarting her life in Britain. The Holocaust Educational Trust Karen Pollock said a shining light has gone out and will never be replaced. A Hazen has been given a seven-year prison sentence for sexual offences against a teenage girl. Jason Blair, who's 47 and from Mill Hill, was found guilty of five counts of abuse. The offences happened early in 2016, when both he and the girl were apparently taking part in an amateur dramatics production. The newly knighted Holocaust survivor Sir Ben Helfgott has spoken of being honoured to have been sculpted by Frances Zegelman, the Leeds-born artist who's created works of the Queen. She's currently producing sculptures of several Holocaust survivors around Britain. And Sir Ben will be speaking to us later in the show. And finally, an exquisite gold pocket watch, which belonged to the leading Yiddish author and playwright Sholem Alechem, is expected to fetch more than £370,000 when it's auctioned at Christie's in New York this week. The 18-carat watch features a star of David with two hands grasped in a greeting and Hebrew numerals. Sholem Aleichem, who was Russian-born, is most famous for his stories about Tevye the Milkman, which later became the hugely successful musical Fiddler on the Roof. Thank you, Vivian. Now we're going to have a look at this week's Jewish news with Stephen Orezchuk, who is the foreign editor. First on the Jewish news this week, there is, well, starting off with some sad news, the, the death of Gina Turgel, the bride of Belson. There's a double whammy, actually, because she's next to um, she's next to Ben Helfgott, which is, I guess, a good news story. It's a great news story and um, overdue and has delighted the community. Ben got knighted in the Queen's birthday honours. Wonderful news. But hours after the news broke, we heard that Gina had passed away. So it was a real bittersweet moment for the community. Gina's funeral was on Sunday at Bushy Cemetery, attended by hundreds, almost a thousand we hear people from all walks of life, Jewish and non-Jewish, such was her impact. And we've tried to reflect that in this week's front page. We've said uh, legend and legacy. And uh, mazel tov to Sir Ben. And, and never has a knighthood been more earned. But it just feels bittersweet. 
So let's just let's go back to to the bitter part, the the bit about Gina Turgle. What do you think was the the legacy that most people took away from from her life? What did she leave us with? She was one of the most eloquent uh, survivors I found. She had an amazing work ethic. She was still talking about her experiences well into her 90s and doing it with poise and, in the words of Rabbi Shaw, who officiated majesty. Everyone I've spoken to who met Gina has a very personal experience that they remember and will always remember. I myself met Gina in early 2013. I'm not Jewish. And I started Jewish News as a features editor. I'm now a foreign editor. But for the first year, I was features. So only six months after I started working here, not knowing anything about the Jewish world, Jewish life, and and never having met a Holocaust survivor, I met Gina in her own home. Wow, I bet that was very special. It was incredible. It was absolutely fantastic. It was just me and a TV producer. She was doing a, a documentary. And it was little things, like she was having a hair done when we arrived. And she explained to us that it was so important for her in terms of her hair and her appearance because when she first arrived in the camp, she hid her hair under a hat for as long as she possibly could because she knew that once discovered it would be cut off and sure enough it was and so that little things like that started to make it real she she smelled quite beautifully of perfume and she explained to us that it was to get rid of the smell of the camps which stayed with her for years she like many others in the jewish community massively overfed me and the tv (laughs) producer i think i had about 17 sandwiches that day but again it comes from her experience of the camps of not having enough food so you know you knew ultimately where it came from so it was it was an incredible two hours and i spoke to the tv producer afterwards and she said part of what we're doing in this documentary is trying to get to know the survivors as people and so she had been meeting gina and freddie nuller and and others on a personal level and she said I've now got to the point of knowing them personally as well as I need to know them for the documentary. I'm now making excuses to come to Gina's house because every time I come, she fills me with positivity and I learn something. And also, am I allowed to echo as well? Because I am lucky enough to say that I too have had the great privilege of meeting Gina Turgle on more than one occasion. And there's some people in your life that you come across who you just can't forget that you have met them. And Gina was definitely one of them. And as exactly as you described, Stephen, as soon as you walk through her beautifully kept house, you're greeted by this immaculate, and I mean immaculate, not a hair out of place, Mm -hmm. pristine looking, wonderful, inspirational person who, as you say, also greets you with a a somewhat, I would argue, overwhelming (laughs) sense of perfume, but some would say a very pleasant smell of perfume. And she was just... An amazing person who I personally, despite her age, can't believe that she's not here anymore. It was absolutely incredible, that house. And I remember being very jealous of that electric armchair that she had. (laughs) But uh, what what we said in our editorial and our voice of the Jewish news this week is that some people don't need to be made a dame to be thought of as one. No, definitely That's lovely. So let's look at um, at Ben Helfgott. He's Sir Ben Helfgott, I should say. And what what are we saying about him this week? All the plaudits that he's due. He's been a fantastic educator, just like Gina was. 
and said, upon receiving the news, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. His voice is uh, starting to not be as strong now as it once was. Uh, so sometimes it can be quite difficult to hear what Ben says these days. But he has been working in the Prime Minister's Holocaust Commission until very recently. So it's a knighthood very well deserved. Moving on to two wheels now. What's going on with the World Jewish Relief bike ride? This is an absolutely amazing initiative. It was a pleasure for me to write about it and to speak to some of those getting involved. So, 80 years since the Kinder Transport operation was launched, a huge anniversary and one that we can still call on many Kinder to, to take part in. And WJR, whose predecessor organization organized the rescue mission, has got together, I think, 42, 43 bike riders or participants to ride from Berlin's station right the way through to the Hook of Holland, crossing over to um, Harwich in the, in the south and riding down to Liverpool Street Station. And so they're going to start at one Frank Meisler statue. There's another at the Hook of Holland and there's a third at uh, Liverpool Street Station, as we all know. Are these riders connected with, with survivors? They are. They are the descendants. And in one case, they are Kinder himself, Paul Alexander, who now lives in Israel, who was placed into the arms of a volunteer nurse on the train by his mother at the age of 18 months. Paul was uh, his mother's only child. She had lost two children already by that point. And he spoke to me from Israel this week and said, you can't believe what was going through her mind. And he said he's going to be thinking on the journey about what they did, not just in terms of his parents, but the organization. And others we spoke to, uh, descendants. One case in particular, a man called Ian Goldsmith, he said that he had no idea what his father went through, but his father and his, and his uncle, so his father's brother, were the, on the first train. But Ian said, I had no idea about any of this until very recently when I was applying for German, uh, German passports and WJR sent me an archive of documents and there it was. Apparently the father just didn't talk about it. Gosh, because the WJR do have actually quite a quite a few of the, the records and you can get original documentation from them. That's right. And he said he was sent photos of his father at the age whereby he boarded the train. He said he was sent addresses. So he's since been able to go to Hamburg and find where his father and his, his uncle lived. And he's even been able to trace living relatives who he never knew he had, including a Stanford biochemist whose textbook Ian read when he was younger. Gosh, so I guess all those people will be not only journeying within themselves and journeying for the, for one another and for, the, for hopefully for future education, but getting to know one another, that must be incredible. It's a fantastic way to get to know one another. And there's an awful lot going to be going on emotionally in that bike ride, I can imagine. There's different generations. There's Paul, for example, has his son and grandson riding. God. His 14-year-old grandson, who says he says is already taller than him. So, <laughs> Well, I hope they're going to be recording some of that. We look forward to, to hearing about it. Unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. But thank you very much, Stephen Oreschuk, foreign editor of The Jewish News. And don't forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. 
And this weekend saw the flag of Hezbollah flown from the streets of London on the annual Al-Quds Day march. Hundreds of anti-Israel protesters were met with a counter-demonstration that was attended by our first guest, Paul Charney, chairman of the Zionist Federation. Paul Charney, how do you deal with something like that? It's a, a very simple question, really, I suppose, but how do you deal with it? So the Zionist Federation organized the event. I chair the Zionist Federation. We have been counter-demonstrating for a number of years. Let's go back to a little bit of the history of the demonstration, if I may. Post-Iranian revolution with the Ayatollah coming in, in the late 70s, they established a march against Israel, essentially for the annihilation, extermination of all Jews and, and the state of Israel itself, calling it al Quds Day, which literally means Jerusalem Day, meaning they will take over Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and take over Israel itself. This march is attended worldwide in a number of major cities and has been att well attended in London for a few decades at least. We at the Zionist Federation recognize the need in the community to stand up against them, not to allow them to own our streets, and pretty much to say, Ad Khan, this is the border. No further shall you, shall you march. But surely they should not be allowed to march because they are talking about a terrorist organization. So somehow this Al-Quds march, march became mixed up with Hezbollah. They, originally, it's, and it maintained, it stays an Iranian march, an Iranian financially and politically backed day. Hezbollah, as we know, are a proxy, a military proxy of Iran. The Hezbollah organization is half prescribed by the UK government as a terrorist organization. And when I say half, the UK government conveniently many years ago, decided to separate the non-existent military and political wings of Hezbollah. This is not only not recognized by Israel or any democracy around the world, including the UK. Yeah, we all know this. We all know this. But yes. the fact is that Hezbollah, whichever half of it is, half that we're talking about are the people who are proper terrorists. Everybody knows they are. Yes. So therefore... Why is this allowed to happen? The, you can't make excuses on their behalf if that were possible. Do you see what I mean? So I'm in absolute agreement with you. We are demonstrating against the entirety of Hezbollah, false separation or not. The Hezbollah flag is flying to antagonize for no other reason. It's to claim this, the streets anti-Jewish, anti-Israel. So then there's another way then, if you're saying that they're doing it to demonstrate anti-Israel, yes. then you're helping in a sense because you're making people even more aware of it. Well, the awareness is there in order to fully prescribe this as a terrorist organization. And what we do and what we did this last Sunday is we brought in speakers, influential speakers, which will help our campaign and, uh, and others who are campaigning along with the Jewish news in order to prescribe it, namely MP for Hendon Matthew Offit or LBC radio presenter Majid Nawaz. Now, these are respectable voices in the community. These are not subjective voices in the community. These are well regarded by, by government figures, and they should sit up 
and listen. If they, if it's not just us saying it, and they are saying it, then the government needs to take note. So, do the two demonstrations face each other, and you talk on one side, and the others, the terrorists, talk on the other side? How does one make out what one is saying? It must be a lot of shouting. Essentially, the police become heavily involved, including police horses and and helicopters, and keep a large separation between the two demonstrations. Initially, for the first few hours, it starts off as a stagnant standing demonstration where speeches are made. They allow their extremist terrorist leaders to make speeches from around the world on a screen as well as their own leaders making speeches and we have honored guests on our side making speeches as well but you're talking about you know 500 meters away from each other so essentially we are hearing the chants and the rants and the drums beating and we are hearing the the, the major slogans being shouted out against each other but we're not near enough to essentially antagonize in that in that sense. However, after the speeches are done, after the first few hours, their march begins. And their march is paraded right across our demonstration, where we proudly and loudly show the Israeli flag to be the one true, free, democratic, liberal flag, standing for all the values that we stand for on the streets of the UK. And how successful do you think you are? Well, l- let me put it in terms of this. Firstly, in terms of numbers. Their numbers over the many years have been dwindling. Their numbers, their, their, the problem with, with, with their, their objective is that it's so blurred. It's essentially, it's an annihilation of Israel. And they come up with different slogans every year, but because it's not a true, it's not their true objective, I don't think they're reaching the people they want to reach and their numbers are dwindling. As opposed to our numbers, year on year, they're increasing. Increasing by 10, 15, 20%. Not only that, this year we had a, the, the, the largest number of youth. And when I say youth, it's anywhere from 18 to 25 that we, than we've ever had before. And the final point is that our message, our, our, our current message, is to prescribe Hezbollah in its fullest in its entirety, and to get those flags off our streets. And what we are hearing now from Sabit Javid's office is that they are listening and they are taking heed. Ah, And it takes time, but eventually the message gets across, and they are now seriously looking at prescribing Hezbollah as a terrorist organization in its full. Do you know, one thing that keeps coming up time and time again, whenever we've had this discussion on the program before, and I'm talking about several incarnations of this program, this discussion has come up time and time again. And the one thing that keeps coming back is this notion of freedom of speech. How do you stop anybody having anti-Israel views without trampling all over one of the single values that makes this country so amazing, freedom of speech? How do we work around that? Again, freedom of speech must have its limits. And the limits are when it starts causing a danger to the population because of extremist ideology turning turning hearts and minds. And so therein lies the danger. And we've seen the danger on the streets in Manchester, in London, when it turns when it turns into suicide bombs or it turns into road bombs or, or car or carjacking or stabbings. Therein lies the border. But but no I, one ever, our Quds has ever caused any physical harm to anyone, have they? Not that I'm aware of, and therefore I have no problem with them standing up and shouting for what they believe in, so long as what they believe in is not the annihilation of entire people. And everything that they represent says we want to get rid of all of Israel, hence from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's the entirety of Israel. 
the Hezbollah flag has a machine gun on it. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization with one objective. It was supposed to, its objective was to rid Israel out of Lebanon. Why does it still exist and why is it still chanting? Because that's clearly not the ultimate objective, same as Hamas. So when it becomes an objective which is anti-liberal, anti-freedom, anti-life, therefore it should not be allowed to happen on our streets. That is why your your argument should be pushed and pushed and pushed to the yes. Home Secretary yes. so that it's stopped forever. Yes. Year on year, we will continue to do that, and one day it will be stopped. One of the things that always bothers me is to see is to see our lot, whatever format they take place, and this 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 group, the Notori Kartai movement. It feels personal feeling. It feels a bit repulsive to me to see Jews looking as if they're Hasidic Jews, siding with them. Has nobody ever tried to take them on one side and have a little a little word in their in their ear about what the organ everything you've said so clearly explained that they are a terrorist organization. By the way, have a quick look at the flag. So Naturae Carta is an anomaly within our community, with, with within our faith, and and it's I cannot pretend to understand the mindset. I am so far removed from that mindset that I kind of pretend to understand why or how they're feeling. Do you engage with them in any way? We have not engaged with them. We know people that have engaged with them, including their own family members who cannot understand them. The, the problem is their beliefs, such as other beliefs, other extremist beliefs, is so far removed from what where we stand. And it's so in-depth and it's so ingrained that no normal rational conversation would be able to turn that. It's almost as if you've been in through a cult scenario and it's almost as if you've been brainwashed. Now, we all know people that have been brainwashed and have this have a syndrome cannot simply be turned through a conversation. It takes professionals and a very smart method in order to turn. But in the defense of a group who are not here to answer for themselves, of course, we do have to understand that they probably find the views of the, I would imagine, the majority of the community, rightly or wrong for me to assume that, you know, they probably find what we think quite bizarre and abhorrent and entrenched. So unfortunately, I suppose it takes all sorts. Their belief, isn't it, is that there cannot be a Jewish state until the Messiah has come. Is that, am I not right? So that's the beginning of their belief. It only starts there. It ends up with them joining up in marches with Iran and joining up with their ideology for their own annihilation. So I can take your point, Phil, that they have a different belief, but that belief is a self-harm belief. That belief is a self-inflicting exterminating belief. I, I cannot understand it. Have they not thought it through? As, as you have said, and the, the problem is, if one day any of that, God forbid, becomes true, then they will be relying on Israel, the freedoms of Israel, exactly. to protect them from their own beliefs. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you'd like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email us at studio at jewishviews.co.uk on Facebook, we're at facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK or visit our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, earlier on, you heard in the paper review that Ben Helfgott, the Holocaust survivor, has been knighted. He was officially honoured in the birthday honours. And as well as that, he's also recently been sculptured by renowned sculptor Francis Siegelman. Well, I was lucky enough to speak to Ben earlier in the week. And here's what happened. I started by asking him to tell us exactly how he felt once he found out he was being knighted. Well, I just couldn't believe it. And you say you can't believe it. Do you not recognise the amazing work that you've done in your lifetime? Did you not think that maybe there's a part of you that does deserve it? Because I know plenty of people who say that it's very well deserved. <laughs> I, of course, I did a lot of work. <laughs> but uh, I didn't think that something like this will come. But I, of course, it is marvellous. It is not for me. It's for my children, for my wife. They know how much I, I did and, uh, and they will be very proud. They always are proud anyway. When my children heard it, it was something very, very, very special. How did you find out? What's the process? Do you just get a phone call, a letter? What is it? A letter. In 1999, I got... So I knew what had happened. The letter said that I mustn't pass it on to anybody until the 9th. Yes, you had to keep it secret, didn't you, until you were allowed? And I, didn't, I didn't tell any, only my wife. Ch- children, they come here very often. But they said to them... That they should come on Friday. It was the eighth in the evening. Then I said to them, "I've got something to tell them." And, and what was their reaction? They, oh, you can't imagine. I mean, know that I do this for a long time, but, but that was something that I had to do because nobody will understand what the Holocaust was. I was only a child. I was nine years and I went to school. I was with the four classes. I was the youngest in my class because I went into the class because I could read and uh, but otherwise I would have been three classes. From 9 to 15, children grow. And for me, this was something that I didn't believe that I was lucky to survive. My parents' side were eight children. My mother and father. And when the war finished, only an uncle and an aunt survived. There were five of us. My mother was killed, my father was killed, killed directly. And uh, my younger sister, who was eight years old. I went to school. There were 41 boys and girls, big class. 
And when the war finished, only I and, and the other girl, one and a half million children were killed. This is why I decided to make sure that people should know that the children will not have to go through this, but what I want. And therein lies the exact reason why so many in the community recognise how well-deserved this is. The fact that you are so open and so honest about the, the horrors that you and so many millions of others went through and that, thank God, you are here to tell the tale. Somebody else who also survived to tell the tale we lost this week, who I know that you knew very well. And I'm, of course, referring to the amazing and truly wonderful Gina Turgle. I was the chairman for the survivors for 55 years. And at the same time, I realised that we are dying, and I decided to encourage our children to follow us. And they, and in 2016, they took over. And so they are now. And this, I started already in 1975. Well, can we take a moment to talk? about another honour that was bestowed upon you this week because as if a knighthood isn't enough you were also the latest subject for the renowned now sculptor and artist Francis Siegelman what was it like being sculpted? I was asked to, to come to the committee support the Shem. I was the chairman for 20 years for that. And then I passed on and I, I'm still now president. But they asked me to come and that was last Wednesday. This, this was a, such a lovely woman. It was, she, 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 she's about 65, but she looked 30 years. <laughs> and she was so touched. She started looking and turned around. All sides, this year, this year, I was sitting and this, and the, about the moving around. And people were moving there, and it was, this was a wonderful, a wonderful evening. And how long did it take for the sculpture to be complete? Uh, it's not completely finished. But, it's but, not completely but finished yet. Okay. But the case was there. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, have you not? No. Okay. So, but 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 it was nice. It was really nicely done. And and I wait to see. Well, I would look at it as it immortalizes. It means that for many many generations, people are going to know exactly who Sir Ben Helfgott is. And 
I'm so pleased that you took time to speak to us today. Thank you. Sir Ben Helfgott speaking to Phil Dave there. If you'd like any more information on any of the guests and stories featured on this show, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, it's not very often that we get to talk about some of the work that the team do outside of The Jewish Views. You'd be perfectly forgiven for thinking that this dominates our lives, as indeed would all of us be forgiven for thinking exactly that, because it sometimes does feel like it. But once in a while, we do get asked about, and our very own Kate Fulton does exactly that. Kate, talk a little bit about some of the other projects that you work on, because in particular, you work on something called shared reading, don't you? Yes, that's right. So I am a reader and I volunteer for, and I have done for quite a number of years now, for the Reader Organisation, which is an organisation based in Liverpool. The idea behind it being to bring reading to everybody. Good literature belongs to everybody. So what we do is we get groups, which we called shared reading groups, because they are not a traditional book group. We don't just say, you know, you, you and you go and read a book and come back and talk about it. We have groups in all different settings all around. For example, in Barnet, I have now 21 groups, which I run. Don't do them all. I have 26 volunteers who work alongside me. It's not just me. When you say run it, what do you have to do to run a reading group? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have a space. So we could be in a library, a community centre, a school, a care home, which we have um, We have at least six in, in Jewish care. And we get together. We make sure that we've got a lovely space, ideally with some natural light and a photocopy and a kettle because we do like a cup of tea and a biscuit. And we bring along a piece of literature and that could be an extract from a book or it could be a short story. And when a group is established, we will read a book together. And then the last part of the the session, which is usually about an hour and a half, we read together a poem. Most people then say, oh, I hate poetry. I've not done it since I was at school. I never understand it. I just ignore them. And we will just be reading a poem anyway. And we unpick it together. So just to clarify then how this does differ from traditional reading groups, that is that reading groups ordinarily would send someone away, say, read this book, come back in a fortnight when we meet again, and we will discuss what we have read and how we interpret it. Right. The way this differs is you read it together. We is read that right? it together. So it's, we are all, to use the, the common vernacular, in the moment with the literature. And you see people's true feelings, whether it's surprise, upset, anger. I mean, we've had any number of emotions. And people who sometimes maybe don't have a community or a group of friends, it's extraordinary how a pe- reading a piece of literature together makes people come together. In fact, I call we call the groups make friends with a book because that's what we do in every sense of the word. We make friends with the book. And I've had groups, we run a group on a Monday, for example, Monday mornings, John Lewis Brent Cross. And people will come to that. They don't know each other. And I've had people come along and something that I've been reading or somebody else has been reading, we all take turns in the reading, has really hit a, hit a note, maybe really hit somebody hard. And they've shown emotion, they've cried or they've laughed or they've drawn breath. And the group kind of rallies around them. But there is something quite disturbing about the day and age we live in, in which now it would appear as if it's almost, I feel as if I'm going to say unacceptable 
to read a book. And I know this sounds a shocking thing to say. Because you but, watch a film, you mean. But that is what so many people seem to have the attitude, certainly at surface value. Now, whether that's because they don't have the time to sit down and read that they once did, I don't know. Whether that's because perhaps they've got access to different distractions that they never used to have, I'm not sure. I really don't know why the reason behind it is. But there is something quite amazing, I find anyway, when I do take the time to read, the difference between reading it to oneself and actually reading it out loud. Because speaking personally, when I read, I actually do shove myself in a little corner because I like to read out loud. It almost sinks in more. Yes, exactly. Just to go back, the reason I think a lot of people don't read as much is because the films, the film channels or the dedicated subscriptions are really good. It's not that they're rubbish at all. They're very, very good. And it takes a lot of time. And particularly when you've got the box sets, you get very invested. However, if you can take the time to move outside, what I find extraordinary is how many people say of a film, it wasn't as good as the book, because nothing is as good as your own imagination. And the reading aloud within the groups does bring a book or a short story alive. And funnily enough, a piece of poetry. So sometimes in those groups, where there are those living with dementia, those who whose mind isn't the mind that it was, they find poetry which can encapsulate in a couple of lines an enormous amount of emotion or attachment to something in the past. They, they can come alive. And I've had some extraordinary results with people who don't normally talk. We've got fabulous statistics on people who their mental health wasn't great for whatever reason. And yet they found a group of people that they can talk in another dimension with. They could park their problems at the door and they live in this new world where they've just parked everything and they can they can just think in another dimension. Why does this mean so much to you personally? Gosh, I think it's because I've seen what the results of what it does. I have had so many people come to me and said, this, I look forward, my whole world is revolves around this Tuesday afternoon, Monday morning. People have come and said this has made such a difference to their life. They have a community of friends. I started a group in Edgware and nobody knew each other. They were all completely disparate people from all different parts of, of, of Edgware. And now they go out for lunch together. They stay together after the group. They have they remember one another's birthdays. It's become a, a community within a community. So where people didn't have communities, they do. You know, one thing that strikes me that I don't know whether or not we've really touched upon in this is that it's all well and good to say that people want to volunteer and to get involved with this fantastic project that you are involved in. But surely that costs money to actually train people because I would imagine you can't just walk straight into it can you? Absolutely people think oh you know you're just reading something how simple is that but really it's thanks to those people who play the people's postcode lottery they are helping to fund this charitable activity because it is expensive to train each reader and they are as a community helping to helping the reader with with the funding and it's through this funding that we're able to hopefully take on some more volunteers. Anybody out there who's listening and wants to volunteer, please get in touch. Just finally, and it always feels weird asking one of our own this question because normally I ask the guests this, but in this instance, where can people go for more information? If you'd like to volunteer for the reader, if you'd like to become a volunteer, it does involve a few days training, or if you'd like to join a reader group, if you go to thereader.org.uk Everything will be on that website. 
Thank you for telling us about it, Kate. So as soon as this particular episode of The Jewish Views is finished, I'm off to go and read a good book. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time, it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. We're currently reading the story of Korach. Korach is the archetypal rebel. He fermented a rebellion in the desert against Moses, his cousin. Now, Korach had it all. He was a leader. He was wealthy. He had connections. He had a good job, but it just wasn't good enough for him. So he managed to persuade other people and himself that really he was just fighting their cause. Moses is a nepotist. He gives out jobs to his brother and to himself. But really what Korach wanted was to be top dog himself. He hadn't really even noticed himself that he was trying to take the leadership. So he started a rebellion and he and his friends, all people who had some kind of gripe against Moses, came forward and they demand change. The story is well known. Moses called them to a dawn showdown. The earth opened and Korach and his followers were swallowed alive. What really lies beneath this is that not that we disagree with the idea of disagreement. Disagreement's fine. It's a question of why and how you disagree. The rabbis ask the following question. What type of disagreement will endure in the end? They use a phrase, which will endure. It's one that's l'shem shamayim, that's done for the sake of heaven. And they use an example of Hillel and Shammai, the pair of sages from the ancient period who argued all the time. They never agreed anything, but they did so in a polite way for the sake of the issues. What's an example of a disagreement that does not endure? Korach and all his followers. But there's only one side. Korach and his followers fought with Moses, but he's not mentioned. Because the rebellion of Korach was really about Korach projecting his own internal turmoil onto the outside, onto other issues. Disagreement is fine. Disagreement is welcome. It enriches ourselves. It enriches our world. But only if it's done for the sake of issues, not egos. Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to our guests, Paul Charney, chairman of the Zionist Federation and the newly knighted Sir Ben Helfgott. Thank you also goes to our producer, Sue Greenberg. And of course, to you at home for listening. Please do remember that you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And also please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, Phil Dave. Me, Kate Fulton. And me, Clive Roslin. We hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.